Get 12 weeks of The Spectator in print and online for just £12. And we'll give you a £20 Amazon gift voucher absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Chinese Whispers with me, Cindy Yu. Every episode, I'll be talking to experts, journalists, and longtime China watchers about the country's politics, society, and more. There'll be a smattering of history to catch you up on the background knowledge and some contextualization. How do the Chinese see these issues? So I hope you'll join me every other Monday. It wasn't long ago when the Chinese lived in communes and their workplaces provided stronger personal ties than their families did. But that approach impoverished a post-colonial, post-war China even more. Then, in the 1980s, then-leader Deng Xiaoping began a process of so-called reform and opening, encouraging private enterprise and dialing back the hand of the state. Today, private firms, especially those in cutting-edge technology, are some of the largest companies in China. But with concerns over Huawei and now TikTok, how private and independent are these companies? My guest today is Duncan Clark, who has been in China since the 1990s. He set up a business there advising Western investors on where to put their money in China. And he's also the author of Alibaba, The House That Jack Ma Built, a biography written from his time spent with, until recently, the richest man in China, Jack Ma, who founded the Chinese equivalent of Amazon. So, Duncan, you've been in and out of China for such a long time. Can you give us an idea of what the business environment was like for entrepreneurs back in the 90s? Uh, it was very small scale. So I, I was living in Hong Kong. I was an investment banker transferred from London to Hong Kong in 93, straight out of university three years earlier. But I basically would visit uh, mainland China from Hong Kong uh, in those first 12 months. And uh, the business there was driven by overseas Chinese investors um, who had set up, you know, including Hong Kong and Singapore uh, and Taiwan, in the mainland as a manufacturing center. So basically... They would either be partnering with state companies very often, or in some cases, some limited private sector companies. But early to mid nineties was very much a kind of workshop China, really that that we saw. And investment in China pretty much was going through、um, state companies, and private sector companies were there. And actually, the origins of private sector go surprisingly early, particularly in places like Zhejiang. You know, even before Deng Xiaoping's famous. Announcements of reforms. There were people basically breaking the law to make money because, of course,、uh, particularly after the Cultural Revolution, you know, during the Cultural Revolution, it was illegal to have any profit. But pretty soon after the end of the Cultural Revolution, there were some really、uh, high risk takers in in places like Zhejiang Province, south of Shanghai, who started trading, you know, maybe surplus、uh, goods, you know, in markets. It started in the agricultural areas, and then sort of markets were set up in towns. But the point being, it very small scale stuff. So. The state was absolutely dominant much of the early nineties, and we started to see some glimmers of private sector gaining traction by then. And can you talk a little bit about the reform and opening process that I mentioned in the introduction? I mean, Deng Xiaoping, you mentioned there, famously had that phrase, which was "black hat, white hat doesn't matter as long as it catches mice," which is signalling this move away from ideology of communism and owning the means of production into private ownership. Yeah, I think you know people talk about the end of communism, but actually it was. I like to call it market Leninism, because we can still see today. You know, China is effectively even more now a Leninist state. So the control of the printing press and control of information has never been probably greater now. And 
But even in those heady days of like late 70s and really early 80s, yes, there was a loosening of Marxist dogma, you know, in terms of the state monopolizing means of production and so on. But there wasn't in terms of opening up uh, media, right? So, so that market transition from Marxism, we could see really gaining momentum in the 80s to the point that uh, inflation starts to become a big challenge in the 80s. That was one of the underpinnings of the Tiananmen Square massacre was the frustration over inflation and corruption and so on. But so basically, there was kind of a free-for-all in the, in the economy, but not at all in media. And occasionally, there were attempts to make it more of a free-flow sort of ideas. And of course, we've seen the crackdowns on that at various times. So yeah, a move away from state-led communist you know, management to a market Leninism, I would say. And then it didn't take long. I mean, it took about 10, 15 years until 2001 when China acceded to membership of the WTO, the World Trade Organization. This is a communist country. Was the hope then that it would continue on its liberalizing economy route? Yeah, I mean, there had been very protracted discussions between China's trading partners and China over the terms of its entry or re-entry to the world trading system, if you will. And definitely there was a lot of expectation of hope. I mean, you know, people like Charlene Brzezewski, the U.S. trade negotiator, I remember at the time, almost Munich-like in terms of holding up a piece of paper saying <laughs> that, you know, we've made this great breakthrough. A commitment that China made was for a selected opening of parts of its economy, but on a pretty long timetable. In the area that I was focused on, which was telecommunication services, the likes of BT and Vodafone and others trying to enter the market uh, to provide their services to Chinese customers, there was never really an opening. There still hasn't been an opening because the opening that was on paper was, well, if, if you can find a partner, then yes, you can go ahead and invest. But of course, the partners were controlled by the state. <laughs> so there's basically now an exercise in revisiting the WTO agreement to say, well, you know, were we duped or were we naive? I mean, I think it's, it's a little unfair because I think WTO did have a big impact on forcing state companies actually to be more efficient and to be afraid of foreign competition. If anything, the government in Beijing used the prospect of WTO and the actual entry to WTO to sort of whip its own companies into shape. And it did also create a lot of opportunities for the private sector to grow. And that private sector, which was so small in the 90s, what does it look like today? Well, now, I mean, it's amazing. I mean, even according to state media sources, in 2018, the private sector was 50% of all tax revenue in China, 60% of GDP of all its production, 80% of urban employment, and 90% of all new jobs. So it is absolutely the end. And this is according to state sources. you know. So, and the amazing thing about the private sector in China is... Whatever it's achieved, which is massive, it has done pretty much without the benefit of any funding from state-controlled banks, commercial banks. So basically, the state banks in China are often directed to make their lending to other state companies because they share a Communist Party leadership. You know, so you have almost like a parallel state. It is a party state, China. So the party institutions sit at the top of the state institutions. So... If a state steel company in Shandong wants funding, it's the party secretary ultimately that's going to lean on the party secretary of the Industrial Commercial Bank of China to make that loan. Of course, that's led to overlending, overcapacity bubbles, and the government has been addressing that in various phases. Um, but the reality is maybe there was a small-scale local steel producer trying to make its own way. They would have to rely on their own wits, really, and maybe some foreign investment, but Ultimately, this is the dichotomy. It's a three-way street. If you think about it, doesn't make sense to have a three-way street, but it's a three-way game between state companies, foreign multinationals, 
and then the Chinese private sector. And the Chinese private sector over time has grown massively from an also ran to the dominant player, particularly in areas like technology, which of course is having a major impact on the Chinese economy. And I, I want to look at the relationship between those three dimensions that you mentioned very shortly. But first of all, I mean, you, you've written a best-selling book called Alibaba, The House That Jack Built. And in that you talk about Alibaba. This is a company that I think Westerners maybe have heard of, but know very little about. Can you explain the position that they hold in the Chinese business environment and why is it important to know about them at all? In March of this year, Alibaba has now surpassed one-sixth of all retail sales in China, not just online, but everything sold in China. One-sixth of it goes through Alibaba. So it's a massive player in consumer e-commerce, So you know, the Amazon of China, we can say. But it's much more than that because it's also invested heavily in financial services. So in China, you may have heard that nobody uses cash anymore. I experienced this in the early parts of the lockdown this year which was great when you're you know, driving your car and want to park somewhere, or you want to pay for something, you never touch cash. You can pay through a window with your QR code and that's through Alipay or Tencent, it's a rival of Alibaba's uh, service. So basically Alibaba is much more than just e-commerce, it's payments, it's in logistics, it's in lending as well, it's in insurance and of course media. So the list goes on. It's because of the dominance it has in cloud computing also, it has a major position for any future digital services that are coming. So Alibaba is, is much more than a, 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 an Amazon. Amazon's big enough, as we know, in the West, but imagine something even bigger than Amazon uh, <laughs> combined with a few other of those tech names that you know, and you start to get a sense of how dominant it is. In recent years, it was found that Jack Ma, the founder of Alibaba, is actually a Chinese Communist Party member. So I suppose the question is how separate these successful companies really are from the state? And also, do you have to be a party member to be an elite in China, even in the private sector today? Yeah, good question. So, I mean, if you go back to when he joined, and he never sort of formally talked about this, including when I was writing the book, but we sort of assumed that most people, particularly in university, you know, it would be a bit like joining a student council or being a Cub Scout or something like that. Cynically, I sometimes say it was a way of like joining the AA or something to get cheaper insurance. <laughs> it, was, it was something that people the did. The Oxford Union. Yeah, it was basically not, it was not an ideological choice, I think, for most people who joined the party, particularly back in the 80s. It was sort of, oh, if it might help me get ahead, fine. A lot of people didn't join, but many people did. I mean, I think today, I forget, is it 90 million or something is a total membership of the Communist Party. So, yeah, it's a lot of people. Uh, it was a tick the box kind of thing, I think. But in the 80s, I don't think people really saw much promise. And Jack Ma himself has often said things somewhat controversially, you might say, things like, fall in love with the government, but never marry them. <laughs> so, and actually, if you look, and I certainly experienced this in the technology and the telecoms field, those companies that really embraced the state and the party most often failed. I mean, if they were private sector companies or semi-private companies, there's a saying in the US, sort of good enough for government service. You know, you make a product, it's good enough to sell to some state company, then fine. But that's a recipe for disaster long-term if you're not meeting your customer needs. And Jack Ma's hometown of Hangzhou and province of Zhejiang, south of Shanghai, is really the absolute core of the private sector in China and core of entrepreneurship. To the point that some cities in his province, like Wenzhou, have hardly any state presence. <laughs> so he's admitted he was a member or conceded he was a member, but he never really sought out to kind of seek government favor. In fact, when he founded Alibaba, he actually quit previously a brief stint in government in Beijing, which he hated, actually. <laughs> In a sense, the smart people in China, frankly, then uh, used to know that you thrived despite the government not 
thanks to it. That, I think, increasingly is changing because the primacy of Xi Jinping and the party to take a more commanding role, in particularly in areas like media and financial services even that might be considered sensitive, is getting more tricky to keep that distance. So we talk about social distancing, but, you know, it's, <laughs> it's, it made me may, went from a kilometer down to a few meters now with the government. You know, it is, it is increasingly difficult to resist. Uh, you know, for example, anything sensitive or anything that might affect social stability could get an entrepreneur in trouble. It's not sort of lock up immediately kind of stuff. It's like, we can make life difficult for you. We will withhold licenses or we'll give you fines. And having said that, you know, there's still lots of areas of the Chinese economy that are not sort of day-to-day micromanaged by the, the state or the party. Most Chinese people's lives has changed unbelievably in the last 20 years because of that progression of the private sector and entrepreneurialism. But in the, let's say the commanding heights, which used to be things like steel and you know, military and, and education. So now, you know, we just don't know when the party and the state are going to sort of intervene. It's, it's a bit more random again. But I still think that, you know, the smartest entrepreneurs know that the moment that they try and hand over the keys, if you will, to the government or to the party, like you tell us what to do, <laughs> you know, you tell us who to hire, then, of course, what's the point? And there has been criticism. There's been quite strong pushback in recent years over this encroachment this feeling that the party is and the state is stepping forward and the private sector is stepping back is one expression we hear a lot. There is sensitivity. And in some cases, the Communist Party, even Xi Jinping himself, has, has said that we you know, recommit to the importance of what he calls the non-state sector. He doesn't often say private. <laughs> so the very fact that it's the non-state the versus private. Yeah, so, and is that criticism from the entrepreneurs themselves? Well, it's very muted, of course. So we don't see direct criticism. But you can tell if capital is leaving the country or, mm-hmm. as we've seen, I mean, um, the contribution of the private sector to the economy has actually been slipping in recent years. Partly is a sense that the state is on steroids now, all this lending, but also this political authority that's been given to the state to buy up, in some cases, private companies that were doing quite well. And often you'd see, you know, an inefficient state company buying an efficient private company and then general dissatisfaction over that. This is not new. There's been back and forth between the state and private sector over years. For example, some of the horrendous coal mining collapses that we used to experience in China, you know, 15 years ago, a lot of those were frankly really dodgy, small, private companies that were taking huge risks and ending up killing miners. And so in some cases, the state stepped in to kind of alleviate those risks. But in other cases, we've seen innovative private companies, which sometimes will step on the toes of state companies, and then they're taken over. But interesting enough, I mean, even now, we still occasionally see, I mean, for example, the financial services sector, the state and the party is actually really smart in the sense that they want to obviously stay in power. So if they see a lot of inefficiency in the economy, they can actually use private companies to help them deal with that problem. And one example is in the banking system and payments, for example, I mentioned earlier, Alibaba and Tencent are providers of this incredible digital QR code payment systems, which have really um, caused a lot of challenges to the banks, not only in the cash that, that these private sector companies are are replacing, if you will, with their codes, but also lending. So private companies like Alibaba and Tencent have these financial arms that are making small loans based on all the data that they have on their customers. Mm-hmm. State banks never actually really bothered with private sector companies or even individuals to a great degree. It was very basic products. I think it's wrong to think that the party is sort of constantly fighting the tide of the private sector. They're often thinking, how can we use this? <laughs> how can we play this? So that's why it's more of a challenge than many people realize. I mean, they're actually really smart about this and they're very well educated. I mean, if you go, the Central Party School 
has a network of schools around the country and they're partnering with some of the leading academic institutions in the world. And by the way, they have unfiltered internet access in their party schools, so they actually know what's going on in the world. So oh, it, it is not a ham-fisted us versus them approach. It's about staying in power and the party will do what it takes. That's the black cat again. You know, it doesn't matter which colour, it's just staying yes. in power. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about the party committees that are inside some of the largest companies in China? Or is it in all of them? I haven't quite figured this out. Is it a legal requirement for private companies to have a party committee? And what do those committees do when they exist? There are long-standing rules that companies above a certain size have to have a party committee. And by the way, of course, trade unions are illegal in China unless they're organised by the state. So you have... Bizarre situations where you might have companies like Walmart having unions in China, but not in the US. But the one in China is really government organized effectively to check boxes. So you have basically a, a pressure for, on the largest companies in China, but increasingly on small and medium sized companies in China from the government to ensure that they're adopting the right ideology. I, I guess I would say one thing is that during the 90s and up until, let's say, the run up to Beijing Olympics, Ideology was on and off important, but not as important as it is today. I mean, we've seen the importance of indoctrination or, let's say, education <laughs> management. Particularly in state companies, it's insane, frankly, the amount of time that managers in state companies have to spend studying the latest thoughts of Xi Jinping and so on is voluminous amounts of you know, <laughs> documents they have to consume. So, But even in the private sector, you'll see statements. In the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, sometimes you'll see prefaces to company announcements, which reflect directly quotes from Xi Jinping. <laughs> so, so we're sort of going backwards, I would say, in terms of the ideology basically being a much higher priority than before. In terms of party committees and so on, the relevance there is that you used to have committees that were sort of there on paper, but like if you didn't have a meeting of this party committee, I mean, you wouldn't maybe access some funds that you'd already paid as a tax, which you could use for some company outing, for example. <laughs> so it was sort of seen as, a, well, we just have to tick this box. Mm-hmm. But now increasingly, we do see this pressure to really learn <laughs> what government wants or what the party wants you to hear and also report back, of course, They're becoming more of an eyes and ears on what's happening. I think an important point to make is that the Communist Party is run by technocrats. In fact, the government of China is composed mainly of people with a science and engineering background. I mean, it's only been recent years that we've had a prime minister who had a legal background as opposed to engineering, you know. So it seems to be the opposite in the West. If you look at the members of the United States Congress, I think it's only two have a science background. And whereas you'd have like 35 people who, you know, were reality TV hosts. <laughs> so, so, I mean, it's a complete mismatch of governance, right? And so this idea of a technocratic government, which is generally pro-technology in, as a tool, but also, I would say, at a popular level, People are more predisposed or perhaps even trusting of technology in China than outside. Not to say there aren't, there isn't resistance over things like facial recognition technology and big data. But generally, I think people are more prone to try uh, new, new things, uh, including elderly people you know, online doing amazing amounts of stuff on e-commerce and so on. Partly because I think they kind of associate technology with a lot of the boom times of the last 20 years. Whatever we're looking at China, is, as you know, I mean, people often tend to view it through a lens of paddy field or red army sort of yeah okay and there are stupid people living in poverty in the countryside but there's also been a massive revolution within cities and also within inland china of urbanization increasing prosperity in pockets and more than pockets and a lot of that is driven by the private sector that we've heard about like job creation innovation 
and also technology. If you're now a farmer in Shanxi and you're wanting to sell apples to Beijing or Shanghai or outside the country, you know, it's technology that is your savior. You know how to get your products to market. You know what to plant, that kind of stuff. It's real. It's not just, you know, marketing exercise for a tech company. It's true. And everybody has a mobile phone. Everybody has a smartphone. I mean, 99% of internet access is over the phone and smartphones are everywhere. So technology is kind of associated with a lot of good things as well as some of the bad stuff. But the balance is much more pro-tech at the popular level and at the government level. Yes. And Duncan, I can't let you go without mentioning the technology firm that the West probably knows about the most, Huawei. Never heard of um, it. <laughs> taking a look at Huawei, you know, on paper, unlike Alibaba, it has no IPO. It doesn't have stakeholders. It, it claims that the company is um, owned by employees, but that's been disputed by other people. Its founder is not only a CCP member, but also a former engineer in the PLA, in the People's Liberation Army. And the Chinese government has also not been too fearful of dubbing it a national champion. So what sort of company is Huawei compared to the private tech firms that we've been talking about so far? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely sui generis. I mean, Huawei is in a class of its own in terms of sheer scale. I mean, it's absolutely massive, as we know, within China, but also on the global level in terms of 5G and we can go on. And yet it started very humble origins and struggled actually initially to sell um, to Chinese customers. If you look at its early deployments of telecom equipment, it was very few customers in China, often very rural, maybe some military link, perhaps. They couldn't compete with Western firms at the time, like Ericsson and Alcatel and Nokia. The irony of Huawei is that it actually had to go outside of China to find customers to, to get scale, to then come back in and sell, sell to the big customers in China, meaning China Mobile or China Telecom, these big telecom companies. Because again, at its core, it's a telecom equipment company, Huawei. And so it had to go to places sometimes that Western firms didn't go. I mean, parts of Central Asia or Africa and elsewhere. Huawei actually started selling overseas to develop some expertise and then eventually cracked into the European markets and then sort of came back. But it was for more than a decade and a half, I think it was not even able to sell in its hometown, home province of Guangdong, because Ericsson dominated the local market. So so, How the tables have turned. Yeah, so I think you go back. So it's wrong to say that it was purely led by government and it was basically a favour of government. If anything, there were other firms, there were four actually, the big name, that were sort of anointed early on as Chinese telecom equipment kind of giants. Two of them just disappeared completely. Another, ZTE, survived, but on a much smaller scale. Huawei, I think, succeeded because it didn't actually seek out government contracts and government funding. Because it knew that the strings attached that come with government funding for research also came with maybe ideological concerns or being forced to develop technology that nobody really wanted. It's a bit like the story of Concord between the UK and France, right? I mean, the massive government-led projects that ultimately didn't really work commercially. The same kind of thing was happening in China. Basically, Huawei was very resistant to state-led pet projects. And if anything, the more they did, they went overseas, the more insulated they were from that. And what about now, now that it is the telecoms company of China? Yeah, so in a, in a sense, it, its success internationally and then domestically was it had this massive scale overseas and it had this street cred to do you know, 4G and now dominate in 5G. In a sense, that has brought them back to much more sensitive position within China as well. We know the position outside, the sensitivity over Huawei in the UK and Australia and obviously the US not being allowing them to come in and so on. But within China, it's sort of, they had no choice, I think, increasingly to, to, than to work more directly with government. The challenge with analyzing Huawei is that I'm not privy to 
those memos that maybe the five eyes say, oh, you know, we have evidence that there was a back door or there, there are links to the state. But neither can those people tell us that either because it's considered classified. As, as sort of an analyst as I am, an outsider, I really can't comment on the national security links of Huawei. But the very point you made at the beginning was Huawei's not listed overseas. There's always been a question, so why not? It would be an absolutely massive firm if it was. One of its principal rivals, a much smaller company, the TE, is actually listed in Hong Kong and actually has explicit state shareholding from the Guangdong government. But Huawei has never admitted to any state shareholding. And they instead talk about this employee-owned company. And I think once a year, there's sort of a window that opens where employees who are retiring, for example, can sell their shares. But it's a bizarre arrangement. And the fact that Chairman Ren is still in control of this company and still maintains he has less than 2% of the holding of the company, it's just, it just doesn't, it's very hard to understand. Huawei's been trying to say, well, we have rotating CEOs, but that alone is an innovation that doesn't really help <laughs> that every you know, I forget if it's every year they have a new CEO comes in and they take turns. It's it's a very bizarre governance. The very fact that Chairman Ren have I actually met a few times, including once at Cannes when there used to be the GSM World Congress, which is now in Barcelona, the annual big trade fair for telecoms. I went up to stand, I was just looking at some stuff and this guy started chatting me for about 10 minutes. <laughs> and then I looked down at his badge and I was like, chairman of the company. He's a complete workaholic, you know. And also he wasn't fancy at the time. This is the time when, you know, Ericsson and Nokia and others were, you know, CEOs were on their on their yachts off of the Quasette, whatever. He's been very hands-on with the company. Um, but also he was a military officer who left, I think, in 78 or something. I mean, Ren had left the PLA quite a long time before he set up the company. But one thing you would notice when you would visit the Huawei campus, as I've done many times in, in Shenzhen, in the morning, you'll see people doing exercises in a group way, which you do see in companies in China. You even see it outside restaurants. But the level of focus on sort of, a, they call it basic training for new, you know, new employees coming in. The very discipline that people may say, oh, that's indicative of you know, links to the military. That's kind of why they're successful, because a lot of their competitors, state companies, were very flabby, very disorganized. I mean, Huawei is an unbelievable machine in terms of delivering infrastructure, for example, to some of the most remote places on earth. And one example I like to use is that I spoke to a, a reporter from China Central Television. I said, well, you know, you're going into, say, Africa. What's the first call you make? Is it the embassy? You know, and said, no, no, no. We always talk to the Huawei people first because they know much more than the government does. I think of Huawei as almost transcending China in terms of its power um, and also... But what about... And what about from the other direction? You know, Huawei may want to keep the government at arm's length because of its history. Does the government feel the same way or does it want to hug Huawei closer? I mean, I suppose one of the Western fears is that if the government did ask Huawei to install a backdoor or whatever it is, then Huawei would find it difficult to say no. Right. I mean, I think the national security law that was passed a few years ago has made life much more difficult for, for Huawei because it explicitly mentions that in cases of national security, they can demand and get the information they need. The way I see it is that for them, unfortunately, is now kind of tainted by the general increase in government oversight of business and also more ideology in China's relations with the rest of the world. In a sense, it was kind of doing pretty well until this much more hands-on, sticky fingers kind of government approach came in, you know. And it's increasingly difficult for them to say that they're immune to that. Or, and I, I've seen it, that they, 
that they didn't actually want and seek out government support in a number of areas. I've also, by the way, seen that with respect to Chinese state companies like China Mobile specifically, when they were resisting being told to buy a Chinese 3G product. They actually actively were working to not work with the domestic technology because they see themselves as much more global in mindset. They wanted the best products, the best technology, the biggest scale. And that's true for Huawei too. Any, any uh, R&D that is diverted from a global standard into some China-only standard would make them less competitive than their Western counterparts. Of course, they've been so successful now in 5G because they've worked assiduously. Some could say there was IP theft and there inevitably was early on, but they've just thrown so many people for so many years and worked to figure out at the committee level you know, how to play the game that they're now just streets ahead of Western players. And so they're mm-hmm. sort of a victim of their own success, Huawei, in terms of this execution mindset. It's a very tough culture. But from a customer standpoint, you talk to Sri Lanka mobile operator would talk about, they would try to lobby to get two engineers from Ericsson and yet Huawei would send two plane loads <laughs> if they needed anything. And they would customize things. They would really listen to the customers and give them what they needed. Often, basically at expensive margin, right? The profit margin. So. In a way, I think we have to be mindful when we just talk about Huawei's success and it's all state-linked. It isn't that simple. And also, the West, frankly, got a bit flabby. These big telecom equipment vendors were, frankly, a lot of corruption on their books as well in terms of foreign governments. And Huawei kind of stole the march on the Western incumbents. In a way, that's sort of part of the neurosis that the West is having right now, is that what if we're no longer number one in this area or that area? So Huawei's part of that. But it certainly hasn't helped itself, I think, with this lack of real transparency over who owns it. And by the way, before we dismiss it as all the state-led thing, in the UK, for example, the early sort of unlimited broadband mobile that we would get from companies like O2 or other, I mean, it was basically Huawei that enabled some operators to start being a bit less stingy with data. You know, so we in the West have criticized the Chinese come along, but they actually kind of democratized actually broadband access. It's maybe democratized is the wrong word, but they totally made it more affordable. <laughs> we have to be careful about throwing the baby out with the bathwater. This is actually the challenge for the Johnson government now, who explicitly has talked about increasing broadband availability and, and reducing prices. And that's rightly so because the UK is lagging. But what do you do? How do you do that if you're going to exclude the world's largest vendor? <laughs> you know, so it's really tricky. And Duncan, now obviously the British government has banned Huawei from the UK's 5G network, but you say that we shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. What about this other Chinese company that's been in the news recently, TikTok? Are there security fears there? Well, I mean, I think the early uh, security fears that we had about this company was really from parents, both with TikTok, the video sharing thing, but also earlier with Musical.ly, which is a company that they bought. Um, so, you know, the initial uh, challenges that they faced were the fact this uh, service is, is aimed at and primarily used by very young people and used extensively by young people, often, you know, below, below the age of, of 16 and, and, and significantly lower. So, of course, the, the first reaction is just from a, a duty of concern to children, protect children. But that's now basically moved up to a sort of a national level and, and a security level. I think in the wake of the Huawei decision, both in the UK, but in other countries, you know, governments are taking a fresh look at any technology company based in China. They're quite different, though. If you take a step back and think, firstly, in a, Huawei is a network infrastructure company. So if you think of the sort of the base of the pyramid, if you will, it's, it's building the stuff that connects us all. TikTok uh, is a content 
company. It's a sharing company. But it has some pretty advanced technology in terms of algorithms which feed us what we may or may not know that we actually want to watch. And this is this again comes from the parental concern is just how how viral this content is, how well attuned it is to sort of get in the minds, if you will, of young people. That, you know, by extension, of course, could be a national security concern too, as we know the power of social media generally, um, without this very sophisticated algorithms, uh, you know, TikTok is taking it to a, a new level. It is consciously an artificial intelligence at its core company, whereas others have moved like Facebook have become, you know, more and more driven by artificial intelligence. From the very beginning, TikTok was basically designed around these algorithms. So it's a, it's a different kind of company even than Facebook a few years ago. Yeah, so, so to, to a much greater extent, it's looking at what you're watching, it's looking at how long you're staying on a video and adapting the algorithm for that. And of course, I mean, I've spoken to some people close to the government here who's, who worry that this will be used for to curate content uh, friendly to the Chinese Communist Party and push down critical stuff. Are those rumours or are those well-founded concerns? Well, there are, I mean, we know, firstly, we know there's a sister company of TikTok in China called Douyin, right, which is able to, for example, using algorithms, foreigners are not able in China to actually post videos or appear in videos because the artificial intelligence will detect that a foreigner is on screen and actually, you know, block that session. <laughs> so you can see the level of sophistication that the company has using some kind of facial recognition with some algorithms they will be able to selectively block people from posting. So now, of course, ByteDance, the parent company of, of TikTok and Douyin, is at pains to stress that, you know, this TikTok is a very international company. It's focused on the world outside China. But as we saw already with the situation in Hong Kong, where, you know, TikTok had to basically exit the Hong Kong market because they were worried about being tainted as, as a, you know, a mainland company that will have to hand over data to the Chinese authorities, it's very, very tricky. It's getting so difficult now for companies to be in the middle and say that they're both an international company and a Chinese company. It's increasingly becoming a choice. Part of this we have to think about is wounded pride in the West. You know, we, you know, the West, particularly California, used to be really have a monopoly on innovation and the coolest new things. You know, that is no longer the case. And that hasn't been the case for a while. We've seen it with companies like Alibaba and Tencent. But this company, the difference uh, for TikTok is that it's it's dominating in the West as well, whereas Alibaba and Tencent were dominating at home and perhaps a few other markets. Here we have a company that originated in China that is dominating in a whole new field overseas. So this sense of oh my gosh, you know, uh, China is is eating our lunch, you know, is 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 there. And Duncan, I guess a final question to you, which is a bit of a personal question. From your perspective as someone who basically straddles the West and China in a business perspective, how do you feel about the current environment and the current, I would say, atmosphere of scepticism against Chinese companies in the West? Yeah, it's, uh, it's certainly, you know, I've been doing business with China, let's say, for the last 25 years. And this is definitely the low point in terms of you know, the lack of trust, the, the, the mutual suspicion. Um, you know, it used to be the old sort of canard was, you know, there's two types of people trade, you know, dealing with China, the merchants and the missionaries, right? And the, the idea was that, you know, trying to be a merchant changing China was, was unlikely to, to be successful. You know, there's some experience in, in our history of that. But being a merchant, you know, the idea of trading with China, a more hard-nosed, pragmatic approach and, and hoping that there will be changes. You know, that was sort of the, the WTO world and so on that we were in. It seems that we've clearly come to the end of that phase that trade is seen to be, you know, pushing, nudging China in a direction that we're more comfortable with. 
And so there's increasing a realization that, you know, to be in the middle of China and the West is a very uncomfortable place to be. I still think, you know, there are still um, lots of opportunities for investors to participate in the growth in the Chinese markets. But the risk now is that if there's further decoupling encouraged by the U.S. and increasingly its allies, uh, to the extent the U.S. has allies, you know, we will see casualties, that we will see capital markets kind of bifurcate as well as the, the Internet bifurcate. So we see the rise of Chinese stock markets and uh, Hong Kong, perhaps, as a more domestic exchange. And also we see the rise of a Chinese Internet with satellites, perhaps, in some other countries, but really quite distinct from the Internet that we knew. So it's a sad time, I think, for you know people on both sides, frankly, to see this bifurcation. Um, we don't know how how far this will go before you know. I mean, costs become increasingly felt in the West and in China, frankly. Duncan Clark, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for listening to this episode of Chinese Whispers. I hope you enjoyed it. If you have any feedback for us, do email in at podcast@spectator.co.uk, and why not leave a review and tell your friends and family about this podcast if you liked it. Get 12 weeks of The Spectator in print and online for just £12. And we'll give you a £20 Amazon gift voucher absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher.